The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Listen to God's Word as I read John 14, beginning at 15. This is Jesus speaking to his 11 remaining disciples the night before the cross. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him or knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. And in that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them It is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, that is not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and the Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. The word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. And this is God's holy word. We encounter various difficulties in our lives when someone who's been important to us has to be replaced. And sometimes we're sure that nobody can replace what a a particular individual was to us. My wife will chuckle because every once in a while this comes up. One of the great early loves of my life, alongside Annette Funicello from the Mickey Mouse Club, was Miss Gretchen Meissner, my third grade teacher. It's very hard for me to contemplate that she's in her 80s today because she was probably not far out of college when I knew her as my teacher. I would guess early 20s for sure. And I was seriously smitten as an eight-year-old boy by this lovely, brunette, soft-spoken, kindly teacher. I went home that first day of school telling my mother what a wonderful teacher I had. And I don't think I had a lot of sick days the first few months of school. But tragedy struck. 
One day, I believe it was about December of that third grade year, an older lady was at the front of the class and she got our attention and gave us terrible news. Miss Meissner had broken her leg ice skating. Now, what are third grade teachers doing ice skating? I wanted to know. I couldn't quite imagine the teachers went ice skating, but she did, and we were told she would be out for a couple of months. This was devastating to me. And the lady talking to us that day was our several-month substitute, Mrs. Davis. Now, looking back, I would say Mrs. Davis was actually a very good teacher. But the contrast was almost too much to take. <laughs> Mrs. Davis appeared to be 90 years old. <laughs> I'm sure it was more like 45. We were pretty sure she had retired from the Marine Corps. <laughs> I'm not kidding. She was all discipline and all business, but a good teacher. Miss Meissner finally did return. I think it was probably around April or March, something like that, that it was early spring that she finally came back. And I felt she'd been gone forever. I felt that I had been deprived of my wonderful teacher. I was so glad to have her back. But we all have people in our lives that we're just sure could not be replaced. That they would leave a hole that nobody could fill. And that's what the disciples were thinking here. Jesus kept saying, I'm going away. You can't come where I'm going. And they were mystified. And they were sad and they were scared. What will we do without him? Here in verse 18, Jesus gives us a core promise of reassurance that I want to build around as we try to understand at least the main portion of this text today. He said to them, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, we believe here throughout this passage, Jesus was promising that the Spirit of God was going to come in His place to continue doing all the things Jesus himself had been doing. We state our trust every week in the third person of the Trinity. You said it this morning. You weren't even that conscious that you were saying it because somehow we're able to say the Apostles' Creed and the Lord's Prayer. The words just come out, and, and they aren't even registering. But, but you said that Jesus was conceived in the body of the Virgin Mary by the Holy Ghost. And then later you said, I believe in the Holy Ghost. And maybe you didn't know what you were saying. The Holy Spirit, we say now. Maybe you're like those people in Acts 19, verse 2, who at one point heard the correct biblical gospel from the apostles, and, and they were amazed at this one part of it. And they said, we didn't even know there was a Holy Spirit. And there are some people who act like that. On the other hand, there are some who almost act like the Holy Spirit is everything there is and, and all you need to know about God. The Scripture tells us the Holy Spirit is like the wind or like breath. In fact, there's a, a clear play on words because the word spirit and the word breath are almost the same. You drive across parts of Pennsylvania, and once in a while, you, there's a place uh, 
somewhere on the turnpike, I'm not sure where anymore, but I uh, know I've seen it, where you come upon a whole grouping of these enormous wind turbines today, great big machines in the sky. And, and the movement of air, the simple movement of air spins those turbines and generates electricity that probably is enough to power a small town, I would suppose. Energy, light, come from the Spirit of God. Here's a thesis of what we're going to examine today. I believe it's the thesis of this text. I say this to you in one sentence. The Holy Spirit is everything to us today that Jesus himself would be if he were physically present. The Holy Spirit is everything to a Christian today that Jesus would be if he were present. When the Spirit of truth, as he's called here, indwells you, you cannot say, I'm a spiritual orphan. God has abandoned me. Jesus has left me all alone. You can't say that. And Jesus promised he wouldn't leave you as an orphan. He said, I will come to you. If you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior, you don't have to live in some state of ecstatic emotion to have the Holy Spirit. You have the Holy Spirit if you have Christ as your Lord. That's what our text is teaching. First of all, I want you to look at verses 16 and 17 here that speak about the Spirit as Jesus' parting gift to his disciples. Now, there's actually several words used here variously in different English translations. Our English Standard Version text uses the word helper. I'll give you another helper to be with you forever. If you had the New International Version, I believe it says counselor. If you have the older King James Version, it says comforter. I'm not entirely sure why helper was chosen for the ESV. I don't think it's the most helpful word, quite frankly. I actually, as far as English portraying the meaning of the original, think Perhaps the King James is, it does a good job with the word comforter because that English word is directly from the Latin root cum forte, which means strength alongside. Strength brought alongside. Think of the need to move a piano if you have a piano in your house. You might budget a foot or two to get the vacuum cleaner behind, but if, if it's going to go uh, across the room, you're going to need strength brought alongside your strength to shoulder that heavy object. And that's exactly what Jesus says the Holy Spirit is going to be. Strength brought alongside you. Someone who lends their strength to the burden, to the task that you have to carry. But there's another important word here in verse 16. It's not just strength brought alongside. It's another comforter or another helper. Let me illustrate it this way. If, if I borrowed a book from you and somehow I was carrying the book around, I dropped it somewhere and lost it. Oh, no, I lost John Light's book. And I said, John, I lost your book. I'll get you another one. Now, that doesn't mean that I would just get John a book on a similar topic Let's say I borrowed his guide to North American birds to do some bird watching. Uh, there are probably dozens of those, books about birds. 
John, I'll get you another one. That means if there, I possibly could, if it's in print, I would go and try to obtain that very same title by the same author to exactly replace another book that was the same as the one I lost. I think that's what Jesus is saying here. I'll send you another person with strength to come alongside you. In other words, he's got to replace me. Thus, he has to have divine strength. He's got to be able to stand in my stead and do the things that I have done. Thus, Jesus was saying he would send one like himself. And, and in this context, that demands that this person be have the power of God, as Jesus had the power of God. In fact, was God. All right, who can receive this gift that Jesus sends? Is it a promise made to the whole world? You would read this, and you have to be aware of who's being spoken to. This is part of understanding the context of a biblical passage. Who's being spoken to? The 11 disciples, all believers. This is not being spoken to some general audience. It is to these believers who trusted in Christ, who relied on His strength, who relied on His divine attributes at work in their life, to whom this gift is promised to supply needs and to continue the work that Christ had begun to do in their life. Verse 17 says, just as Jesus had been one who walked beside them, so will the Spirit now live with you and be in you. Very important. He, he will dwell with you and be in you. All right? It's Christians that receive this gift. Now, there's a popular error, and we could spend a lot of time dealing with this and illustrating it, that say, especially in the 20th century, this became a popular idea, that it's only some Christians that have the Holy Spirit. And the teaching would be out there that would say, you can trust Christ as your Savior, and, and perhaps if you get the extra blessing or the second stage experience or something like this, the Holy Spirit will be part of your Christian life, but you can still be a Christian without the Holy Spirit. Wrong. Unbiblical. Not taught in the Word of God. The Holy Spirit is not like an extra option you buy for your new automobile. You know, you spend an extra couple thousand dollars and you can have this gizmo on your car. And so maybe some Christians have the blessing of the Holy Spirit and others do not. That is not the teaching of the Scripture. I'm not elaborating on this or going into it a great deal, but I'll just lean upon the key text for it, Romans 8, 9, that declares, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. For the whole awakening process to the Christian gospel The fact that God takes someone who's dead in their trespasses and sins, their mind cannot perceive their need for God or reach out to God or respond to God. How does that first cry to God happen? It happens by the Holy Spirit, bringing life where there was no life. So if you do not have the Spirit of Christ, you don't have Christ. Now that doesn't mean, of course, that every Christian has the same enthusiasm, the same joy, the same assurance, and all these kind of things. The gifts that the Spirit might bring are different in different Christians, but every Christian who has Christ has the Spirit of Christ. Luke eleven 
13 has the words of Jesus, if you human fathers know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give a very specific gift, the Holy Spirit, to those who ask? He's God's best gift that he knows how to give and wants to give his children. All right, then secondly, we come to the heart of this text. And the heart of this passage is a statement that might be astounding to you. I think I was surprised in my young adulthood to study in seminary and realize this point that I'm making because I don't think I knew it in my earlier years. I'm going to state the point this way. Where the Spirit of God is, there Christ is. Where the Spirit of God is, there Christ is in a Christian's life. Now, the core of this text is verse 18, where Jesus promises to his disciples, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. The question is, what did he mean by I will come to you? There's one school of interpreters of this passage that say, well, he meant his second coming. His grand event in history, which we still look forward to today, when Christ will return to bring history to an end, that which we call the day of the Lord, the great wrapping up of all things as far as life that we know it now in this planet, in this age. That is certainly a real event and a a grand event and not an event that we de-emphasize in any way whatsoever. But we do not think, as some do, that that is what he's referring to here. If you put it in context once again, that verse 18 is, is in the midst coming right after him mentioning the Holy Spirit coming upon them. And then he says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. It seems pretty clear that Jesus is saying here, in the coming of the Spirit, I will come. Everything that I have been to you will be with you in the presence of the Spirit. Now, this is something that's going to happen sooner, of course, in history than his final return. It happens when we trust Christ and when we give him our lives and submit our lives before him. You know, one of the ways we talk to children in the, in the midst of evangelism, and I'm sure some of you Sunday school teachers or Bible school teachers have talked to a child and said, we have to trust Jesus and ask Jesus into our heart. I've heard some amusing feedback sometimes when children try to figure out, you know, children are great literalists and they try to figure out how does Jesus fit into my heart? How does that work organically? Uh, Of course, we're knowing that we're saying it spiritually, asking Jesus into your heart. But that's very much in sync with what we're talking about here. Verse 20 of our text has Jesus saying, you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Of course, he's speaking spiritually. But Christ is saying, I will dwell in you. And that reality will take place through the presence of the Holy Spirit. For as far as a space-time location is concerned, Christ is in heaven. He's at his Father's right hand, and yet he's with us. He's in us because his Spirit is in us. A full working partner of the Trinity called the Holy Spirit, who is a person, not an it. Don't ever say, you know, that thing, the Holy Spirit, is with me. The person of the Holy Spirit is the personality 
of God. Distinct. God is truly Father, Son, and Spirit. We're dealing with a great mystery here. But at the same time, the persons cooperate together and work together. And just as the Father shows himself, and Jesus has spoken this earlier in this chapter and in other parts of John, he says, you want to know who the Father is? Whoever's seen the Father or or wants to see the Father, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. There's a cooperative yoking of Father and Son. Similarly, there's a cooperative yoking of the Spirit and the Son. That's what we're saying here. And you know, this isn't a new thing in the life of Christians either because many people miss the fact that there was this yoking of the Son and the Spirit in the earthly life of Jesus. I didn't see that until I I was, I'm sure, an adult probably already ordained in studying the New Testament when I began to realize how important the Holy Spirit was to Jesus on this earth as he did his ministry. You know, I used to think, well, Jesus is the Son of God. Of course, he was divine. He had everything he needed. Well, wait a minute. The Bible says he didn't exactly have everything he needed. It was the Spirit that brought him to life in the womb of the Virgin Mary. It was the Spirit who descended on him in power at the baptism and invested him, it seems, with the fullness of God's blessing and investiture. And this is a mysterious thing. We say, what what could Jesus need if he was the Son of God? Well, the Scripture says he needed the Spirit. And he had the Spirit, and it was in the Holy Spirit that he resisted temptation and did miracles and preached the wonderful things that he did. It was the Spirit that was involved with power in His resurrection. And so it's that Spirit that resurrects us and comes into our life as the construction manager, I like to call it. I remember so well the gentleman who worked for our general contractor and any of us involved in the building project here. By the way, it was nine years ago last week that we occupied this sanctuary. And I remember the young man, he was very young then, who was the construction manager. He was on our site every day, and lots of people were involved in building this building. But he was the guy kind of making all the phone calls, directing things, knowing who was doing what on the spot. The Holy Spirit is the construction manager of a Christian's life, directing the work of God. And so it is that the Bible can say What Paul wrote in Galatians 2.20 about being crucified with Christ and I no longer live and Christ lives in me, he said. Remember that? Galatians 2.20. Colossians 1.27 similarly speaks about Christ in you, the hope of glory. How is Christ in you? By the Holy Spirit. So yes, the Son and Spirit are distinct persons in the Trinity, yet they're yoked, they're bonded, in a partnership that is dedicated to deeply unified purposes in your life. And if you try to drive a wedge between them and say, well, I think I'll separate what Jesus is doing in my life from what the Holy Spirit is doing in my life, you can't do it. It's not possible. Many times in our worship service, we sing what is called the Gloria Patri, Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost, as it was, that is God, I think it's saying, as God was in the beginning, God will now and ever remain until the world ends. Amen. 
You know what that is? That's the fight song of God. Schools and colleges are rolling out their football teams. I watched most of Penn State yesterday, saw the band. I guess there's a song. I don't know the Penn State fight song. I, my high school fight song was the dumbest song I ever heard in my whole life. But we would sing this thing with great gusto at a football game. It didn't mean anything, dear alma mater, to you this song we sing, working together, victory will bring. Well, did you know God has a fight song? God's fight song is glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Ghost. As he was in the beginning, he now and ever shall be. That's a great fight song. God, the three-in-one, the mysterious union of Father, Son, and Spirit works in us so that all of the Father is seen in all that the Son was, and all that the Son does in us is done by the Spirit. Have you got it all figured out? Congratulations. Come on up here, please. I'll even let you have the robe. You need to be here. It's a mystery. A great, tremendous mystery, but it's what the Scripture declares. Where the Holy Spirit is working, there Christ is working. It should be something we would celebrate and sing, our supernatural unity of Father, Son, and Spirit working in us. Third and finally, I'll tell you another point that is added to this text, and it actually comes out even more, and we're hopefully we'll have the chance to study chapter 16 of John, where more is said about the Holy Spirit, but it's at least introduced here. And I say it this way, the Spirit works primarily through the Word of God, giving us the Word. All that the Spirit reveals and teaches inevitably points to Christ in the written Scripture. Verse 26 here, Jesus said, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I have said. He's referring to what would happen in the reality of the Scriptures. And we're, I hope, as I said, we'll study John 16, 13, and following in weeks to come. There it says, the Spirit of truth will guide you into all truth and will not speak of it on his own, but will bring glory to me, Jesus said, by taking what is mine and making it known. This is the gift of the Scripture, the things that were said a long time ago that the Spirit brought to remembrance and allowed apostles to write. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 2.10, the Spirit searches even the deep things of God. No one knows the mind of God except the Spirit of God. We have received that Spirit so we may freely understand the things God has given us. What are those things? The things that Jesus taught, the things that prophets and, uh, promised a, a long time ago. The Spirit was the vehicle of God bringing the book of God into existence. And it is that book of God by which God primarily speaks. If you were paying close attention to the middle hymn we sang, the second verse began with words, I ask no dream. No prophet ecstasy, no sudden rending of the veil of clay. The hymn writer was very nicely capturing the centrality of the Word of God as the vehicle of the Spirit of God. We don't look today and say, you know, I don't call on you and say, has somebody here got a, uh, had a great ecstatic 
experience where God the Spirit made you jump out of your skin this week and you need to tell us about it. Uh, It may well be that God could do that. We're not going to say God could not do that. But that is not God's normal way to reveal himself. His normal revelation comes by the Spirit through the Word inspired to authors long ago. And now that same Spirit, that divine wind that was in the sails of human authors so that we could say what they wrote is what God said, is there illumining and and once again opening the understanding of it to us. I'm sure all of you who've driven a vehicle at some time or other have been caught in a time when the temperature was just right, usually a very humid time, a time of variable temperatures. It might be raining outside, and, and the condensation is such that your, your car windshield just fogs up. Maybe you're driving along, and it happens, and you're a little bit panicked because your wipers are going furiously, but that's not helping the fog on the inside of your windshield. Maybe you take your arm and try to clear it off quick, but you know the better solution is to get that defrost on, get that air of a certain type blowing across the windshield to clear the fog. Isn't that what the Holy Spirit does to the Word of God once given to us? It it gets in there and illumines the Word and shows us those deep things of God that to our mind might be almost nonsense. You You probably know someone, and maybe you have this memory yourself of being a person who remembers before you came to know Christ and trust Him, you looked at the Bible and you said, what a dead book. I don't understand it. It doesn't make any sense to me. And then you come back. Once you've given your life to Christ and the Holy Spirit has moved in and is at work in you, and you go, wow, was that there all the time? I never saw that. Look at that. That's amazing. Many Christians experience this and say, now it's a living book because the Holy Spirit has removed the fog. And in your life as a Christian, suddenly God's book is a living book, God's living communication to you. Well, in summary today, Jesus definitely did not leave Christian believers alone. He came to us in the person of the Spirit. To believe in Christ as your Lord necessitates that His Spirit does dwell with you. It's not a matter of ecstasy. It's not a matter of trances and visions and jumping around or uttering strange languages. It's a matter of the dwelling of Christ according to His promise with His people. He will not leave us spiritual orphans. He promised that He wouldn't. And Jesus... Christ is no longer confined to one little Middle Eastern country in the first century. He is everywhere present with his people and in his people by his Spirit. So he powerfully fulfills that great, tremendous promise that he made. I will be with you always to the very end of this age. Thank God for that. Our Father, we thank you for even this mystery of the Spirit. We don't profess to fully understand it, and we confess that we've had our misunderstandings, and there are misunderstandings about your Spirit. Thank you for the Spirit who speaks in us, moves us, nudges us, guides us, illumines us, brings us alive. 
Thank you for Christ, present by his spirit of truth in his people today. We go in the assurance that we are not left as orphans. In Jesus' name, amen.